Hello and welcome to The Domain of Women, a podcast highlighting the stories and ideas of women in social sciences. I'm Olivia Maynard and today I will be taking you inside the fields of anthropology and sharing with you my conversation with anthropologist Claire Wilkinson. Claire is currently an associate professor of anthropology at Washington State University, Vancouver, and conducts her research on craft in India. It was such a pleasure to get to chat with her about her life and her work, so let's just jump right into my interview with her. Uh, So my name's Claire Wilkinson. I'm an anthropologist. I'm an associate professor of anthropology at Washington State University, Vancouver. Um, My main area of interest in anthropology is on uh, media production and craft production. Uh, And most of my work has been in India. I've been um, going backwards and forwards to do research in India since 1989, um, with some breaks in between. Um, And uh, my first work was on uh, looking at an embroidery industry in a, a northern city called Lucknow. And then since 2002, I've been looking at the film industry and um, production in the film industry. And first I was looking at costume production. And then more recently, I've been looking at production design. So things like set construction and all that kind of stuff. In order to better understand her experiences and her professional life as a whole, I figured we should start at the beginning. I was curious as to what brought Claire Wilkinson to her field and to what she chose to study. So I asked her exactly that. Um, Well, anthropology was a little bit accidental because I did my undergraduate degree in uh, the UK and um, I was very poorly advised by a um, a student career, uh, you know, a career counselor at my high school. In the UK, uh, generally speaking, you specialize much, much sooner than you do in the US. So uh, in the latter part of your high school, and this is still true, even though I was, you know, going to school in the Stone Age, um, that you know you specialize in various topics so you do like a whole wide range of exams um if you know if you're you know go education all the way to 18 uh you do a wide range of uh subjects and you do exams in that when you're about 16 15 16 and then you kind of narrow it down to a much smaller set of subjects so that's what's called used to be called your a levels maybe it's still called your a levels i don't know So, you know, you only do three subjects for the last two years of high school. Um, So anyway, I was very badly advised because I had done some archaeology, actually, uh, in London, which I really enjoyed. And so I said, oh, you know, if I want to do archaeology at the university, how do I do that? And what she did is she looked and there was this book which gave you the guidance. And she didn't look at all the archaeology. The first thing she saw was classical archaeology. And she said, oh, we've got to do Latin and Greek. Well, I'd already done Latin because we had to do Latin at my high school, which was awful. Um, And I thought, how am I going to do Greek? I've never done Greek before. So I had to do like a year of remedial Greek, ancient Greek, which is ridiculous. So I ended up doing these two A-levels, you know, one Latin and Greek and then history. And of course, I didn't didn't necessarily want to do classical archaeology. I just wanted to do archaeology. So everybody was saying, why did you do Latin and Greek? What a nightmare. So then I go to university to do archaeology, and then I discover that while I like doing archaeology, I really didn't like studying it. So then it was a question of like, well, how do I get out of this and what else can I get into? Because you're very restricted by what you did your A-levels in. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to do English, because they'll say, well, you haven't done an A-level, so you're not ready. So the only two subjects 
that would take me were history, because I had a history A-level. And in history, you had to write an essay a week, a five-page essay a week. So I didn't want to do that because I wanted to have a normal undergraduate experience. Um, or uh, anthropology. So I thought, well, I'll do anthropology then. <laughs> so, so doing anthropology was never intentional. But then actually, once I started doing it, I, you know, I sort of quite enjoyed it. Um, and then I found that I was actually, you know, better at it than I thought I would be. So then I got a good degree for, you know, high ranking degree. And then, um, then you start thinking, oh, okay, graduate school, what would that be like? Um, and I was in my early 20s. So at that point, you know, you're thinking adventurously. And I thought, well, what I always like, I've always liked to come to, wanted to come to America. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll come and do a degree in America. So I got funding for two years to come to the US. Um, and I wasn't planning to do a PhD. I was just gonna come and mooch around and get an MA or something and go back home again. Well, the program I was in, they expected people to do PhDs, which was really shocking um, to me because I hadn't really bothered to look up exactly what I was getting into because this is what you do when you're 23. It's like, oh, I'm going to America. Oh, I've got to be doing this program. Oh, I'll find that out when I get there. <laughs> So then I found that I was on this supposed PhD track. And then at that some point also, I met my husband at that time, who was American. So at that point, then I was kind of committed to the country and I finished doing a PhD. Um, and then in terms of doing what I did, I'd always, ever since I'd been an undergraduate in, um, in anthropology, I always had this interest in material culture that came from the archeology span as well. And then in trying to sort of see where art and economy where they connect, you know. Um, so I continued that. And then India was just simply because my husband was doing research in India. So I thought, oh, I'll come along too. So I'm, I'm sorry to say that, you know, instead of there being like a plan, I've, I've fallen into these as I go along. And, you know, they just happen to work out and, you know, they, they trigger enough of my interests that, that it makes sense at the time. So that's my story. Hearing Claire say that she didn't always have her plan all figured out was very reassuring, especially as an 18-year-old whose life is about to change significantly due to going off to university next year. I followed up by asking her more about that uncertainty and what it might mean for me. You know, when you're older like me, you know, you're, you're realizing that you can't do what you could do 20 years ago and that you haven't got like this massive vista ahead of you of what you can do. But when you're younger, you know, the possibilities just um sort of map themselves out differently and of course the possibilities map themselves out differently depending upon who you are and where you are in society i'm not saying that those aren't factors as well but even talking to my parents and my parents grew up working class and still you know the way they looked at life when they were young was very different from the way they looked at it you know 40 years later it's just it's it's just the way it is you know Part of the reason why I asked to interview Claire Wilkinson was because I was fascinated by her study of craft in India. Upon reading her books, I was curious as to if her being female benefited her research in any way. Thinking of the anthropological concept of gendered space, I wanted to know if she felt like it was applicable to her at all. Well, certainly doing the work that I did in India, 89-90, I mean, there were places I could go and people I could talk to, which if I were a man, you know, a man presenting as a man, whatever it was. I mean, you know, you, you simply couldn't do that um, in those communities because they were sort of fairly strict uh, Muslim communities. 
um, and uh, and so you've got you know various forms of sort of segregation by by sex. So consequently, men can't be in private spaces with women. Um, and even in public spaces with women, you know, there are a lot of constraints and a lot of kinds of barriers and things like that. So, you know, th that's something which you can only do if you're a woman. And I mean, I, you know, this is hard to say. I mean, you know, perhaps the nature of some of the more personal sort of friendships that I've created over the years are changed by the fact that I'm a woman and a friend being friends with other women. That might be a factor. And it might mean that you get access to certain kinds of insights and experiences that would be different if I were not a woman. But that's a little hard for me to say, you know, because that's sort of based on a, something which is very subjective. But objectively, I know that there are certain things and certain um, that, that I, could, I could only know, or I could only experience because I was a woman. Then in the costume work, you know, I could be um, in a dressing room with a female star and with her hairdresser. And if I were a man, well, if I were a man, I could be if I was her makeup artist, but if I wasn't her makeup artist, I couldn't be. So like, what the hell are you doing here kind of thing. Gender is apparent in all aspects of life, and it defines how we exist within the world. I asked Claire about where she thought that gender was most apparent in her life. Was it in her work or her personal life? Were they equal? Or was gender not even as important as other factors? Here's what she had to say. I would say it's very hard to, for me to make a separation, actually, of what's personal and what's professional, because I think that the two flow into each other very considerably. So, you know, what I've dealt with personally has affected me professionally. Uh, in the last um, several years, uh, my husband became very severely ill with ALS and eventually died in 2020. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's a very heavy um, caregiving burden. And it would be a heavy caregiving burden if you were a man or a woman, of course, you know, if you're a, you know, a partner taking care of somebody. Um, but um, just in general, you know, caregiving does generally tend to fall more heavily upon women than it has on, in, on men, in my experience. And this is also like talking to students, is that in general, I've talked to more students, female students who are caregivers to children to older parents, to um, members of the family with disabilities, things like that. It does tend to be more female students. Now, I mean, you could say, well, the if there are men who are doing caregiving, maybe they're not trying to come to school. But then it's also maybe true that, that, you know, well, we also see that I think, I think right now we're looking at slightly more women are pursuing degrees than men. So, you know, there's a gender factor there. Sometimes also though with older women who are more likely to be getting hit by a care burden of children and of older people are usually coming back to complete degrees later on because they somehow missed it earlier. Um, so I, I, so my point is, is that if you just look at caregiving and you know, my personal experience with caregiving at different points in my life and my gender, you know, I, I really can't separate out what becomes important to me, personally speaking, from what is important professionally. And to say that gender plays more of a factor in my professional life, my personal, because it, it flows from one to the other. The core concept of this podcast is to hear from women about what it means to be female in their field. 
After talking to all of these incredible social scientists, I've discovered that many of their experiences are universal within their field and across disciplines. You can't ignore the fact that in any social science field, being female greatly shapes a person's experience. I asked Claire for her thoughts on what it means to be a woman in anthropology, and I found her answer to not only be eye-opening, but proof that there is still plenty of room for change to occur within anthropology. Oh yeah, that's been enormously important. I mean, you know, first of all, um, as an undergraduate, you know, you're dealing with the fact that you get hit on by professors. So, you know, I mean, there, I had one professor who was saying, because you had to specialize between social anthropology, which, which is what we call it there, or physical anthropology. And so I was specializing in social anthropology. And this other guy was saying, well, you can come to my seminars. I was like, you know, I'm not going to go to twice as many seminars. It's ridiculous. Why is he saying this? You know, and I mean, they weren't, they weren't saying that to the men. Um, I mean, at least I never heard it. And again, it, they didn't say it to the men, whether they were gay or straight or whatever. I mean, that was just something they only said to women. So, you know, you're dealing with, you're dealing with that kind of nonsense. Um, and then I've, I've faced then two problems later on. I mean, one is the problem you run into, you know, when you um, start having kids, if you have a family. And I actually found that the uh, female faculty were less supportive than male faculty, which is curious. A number of people have said that too. Um, I think probably with the female faculties, they probably think that you're sabotaging yourself. And so they get angry with you on behalf of women as a whole. But I don't really think it's a particularly constructive way to deal with the problem. But it, it, slow, it slows you down. There's absolutely no doubt about that, I think. Um, and and it's, it slows you down because, I mean, it's just you need to have a really good support system. I mean, you can't just like having a baby is not like having a dog. Um, I mean, even having a dog is more, is more than not having a dog, right? Um, I think though the other problem is, is the nature of the research I was doing initially on uh, a woman's craft and, um, and then looking at costume. And if you're doing a woman's craft, people think you're doing that because you're too stupid to do anything else. I mean, they shouldn't think that, but they do. Um, if, you're doing, if you're doing a men's craft, you're slightly better off, but craft is conventionally thought to be what stupid people do. And then costume, anything to do with dress and fashion is also thought to be something that stupid people do. And this is notwithstanding the fact that costume scholars have for ages been saying, you know, what are some of the most fundamental human activities we are? If we look at prehistory, cooking food, no other creature prepares its food. We know that cooking is immensely important in human evolution. It does all kinds of things, which I could go on forever about. Another thing is wearing clothes. It is very hard for me to think of a single human group anywhere in the world that wears nothing. I mean, you know, you've got some sort of facial tattooing, you've got some kind of scarification, you've got jewelry, you've got some adornment, something. Or, um, you know, in some areas of the Amazon, you know, people are pretty much naked, except women wear these little sort of string kind of bikini things. You know, why do they do that? They don't have to. I mean, if you are essentially living in the equatorial regions or tropical regions, you don't actually, you know, have to wear very much. But humans do. They just do. You know, and of course, anytime you move out of that zone, you have to because we're naked apes, essentially. So, you know, clothing is one of the most fundamental human activities. And yet 
repeatedly, it's always again dismissed as something which is not serious. And I think it's because, again, a lot of women associated with it. I think um, uh, men who men who are associated with if men do it, it's taken more seriously. But it's also a lot of gay men. And I think, you know, sometimes still they find it's harder for them sometimes to be taken seriously. So, you know, it's one of those things which um, definitely is kind of marginal academically. So yeah, you'll suffer doing that. So now I'd like to bring on my co-host, Sho Shigioka, who has been in many roles in the field of education and is currently an assistant principal. There is no one else I'd rather get to talk to about all of this. She is such a compassionate and thoughtful person and brings in an additional perspective as a woman in education. What you're now going to hear is Sho and I unpacking Claire Wilkinson's ideas of what it means to be a woman in anthropology. Like she has so much that she wanted to tell you, right? Um, and what she said about, oh my God, once you talked about having kids and you just you just don't have the same level of opportunity and, and at the same time you're expected to do more once you attend more seminars. I mean, this is so real. And my guess is that you might have seen something like that here, but you will definitely encounter that in college and in real life as well. So for you to go into the real world, so to speak, knowing that these are still these things are still happening, it's good for you to have that awareness. I mean, I can totally relate to what she's yeah saying. Yeah, um, like I remember when I was, I had my daughter. Um, it was right after um, another male colleague of mine had their first baby. Um, and every ask that he had, it was kind of like, oh, sure, we'll give it to you. You have to stay home. You know, it's great that you as a dad are stepping in to be a responsible yeah. dad and take care of your baby. Oh. Well, when I asked for, I asked for similar things, yeah. it's like scrut being scrutinized, right? Because mm -hmm. it's expected that I know how to handle juggling home yeah. and work. Um, so that discrepancy that she's talking about, it's it's like, it's so, yeah, it just hit me. And the fact that you have to like choose, because another one of the women I spoke to, she was like, I chose not to have kids because I don't have time to have kids. And I also don't know, I know that I don't have the support to have kids because like, it's just not built into the system to support people that want to be moms. Mm -hmm. Isn't that sad? It's so sad. It and because it, it shouldn't have to be either or. Yeah. Right? Why why can't we have both? Yeah. And but I think especially in the academia, and I don't know so much about social science, but I just I just think in any academia it's that this false ideology of everything happens in in a binary system. Yeah. <laughs> it's always this or that. Yeah. It's never about this and that. Um, I think we as women really experience that yeah. more so. And that this, the piece that she talked about, um, how women faculty tend to, to be less supportive, this idea of sabotaging. Yeah. It, it was like dagger. But <laughs> I, I've definitely seen that happen, um, sadly. And I think because we live in this culture of competition, and especially in academia, this idea of being tenured, meaning that 
you do certain number of research projects and you get published and you do so many hours of community service and so you develop yourself as a as a scholar right yeah There's so many steps that people have to go through um and it's a very highly competitive process um so i think we still live in this um that competitive um pull up your bootstrap at any cost um yeah. or sometimes dragging others down yeah because women are feeling like i have to make myself out there yeah but there's only so many positions available exactly. so i'm going to i'm going to drag others down if that's a sad place to be but that's that i think that's what she's talking about yeah but what did you take away from it i just it's interesting talking to women that are like older than me like they have so much more life experience than me and the fact that she's like warning me she's like oh you should know going in that this is something that could happen to you and it likely will especially with the thing about professors and like I don't know university is like a place to learn Mm -hmm. and the fact that you have to be like you're getting all of these warning signs I mean that's true of like being a woman in other spaces too and it's just Mm -hmm. I hate that like she has to tell me this I wish she didn't have to tell me this I know I wish that wasn't the reality um and I think, to me, what she didn't say, but it was implied, you know, by her sharing her story, is is that now that you know this, you have the responsibility to share this with the other female colleagues, right? Your yeah. Your female friends are going to be making in college, and you create your army. Yeah. Um, I hate to do this, but I'm going to make a Harry Potter reference. <laughs> it's like you're creating the Dumbledore's army. Exactly. Because you, you do have to create a collective yeah so and i feel like by creating that collective you're going against the Mm -hmm. the competition and the fact that you all have to be separate and when you could be working together and you could be solving these problems exactly so you don't have to sabotage you don't have to drag others down right but collectively yeah you can lift yeah right so that's what we want Throughout my entire conversation with Claire Wilkinson, I was able to learn so much from her advice as well as her just telling me about her experiences. My favorite part of all of these interviews was that I just got to learn from incredible women like Claire and gain the wisdom that they've acquired over time. Here's a piece of advice that she shared that really resonated with me. You know, is is that of course everything is so relational. It's it's relationships, and I don't just sort of mean personal, sort of intimate relationships, but you know, professional relationships. Um, you know, things like that can make such a difference in your life. I mean, um, it's always something I, I should have mentioned earlier, I suppose, is that again, I think if you can in some in any way work collaboratively, it's always really helpful. Um, because more than one head is always helpful. You can support each other. Um, you can be more productive. If you're doing something which just relies on your own energies and your own efforts, there are times when it's very hard to pick yourself up and make yourself do something. Whereas if you're part of a team, um, you know, other people will sort of help chivy you along. So um, relationships, I think, is going to be very important for anybody, which is, you know, the professional relationships you create that are part of your support system, of part of the work that you're doing um you know the mentorship is part of that right you know mentorship is a relationship so sort of always thinking of how i can sort of create beneficial 
constructive relationships, I think is not just good for you, but I think is just good for a whole bunch of people, I think. Regardless of where you are or what you do, connections and interpersonal relationships are essential. Now I'm going to bring back show so that we can talk about our thoughts on collaboration and relationships as a whole. So again, going back to what we were talking about, this collective, right? As we develop relationships, as we support each other, as we nudge, as we encourage, as we question, but with this intent of, I want to lift you up, as opposed to, I want to push you down, right? As long as we have this intent of, I'm going to lift you up and build relationships with that in mind, um, I think that's the only way that we collectively as women can, 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 you know, move exactly uh, upward. And um, so, I, and you are so good about being honest and being reflective, and um, you're so personable. And I want you to continue to use that because mentorship is gonna really make it or break it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I guess for you, mm-hmm. as someone who is seen as like a mentor figure, I mean, I definitely see you as like a mentor mm-hmm. and someone I mm-hmm. can you. always turn to. Thank you. What's that role like for you, like being able to help others and support? Like my my approach is I don't have anything to offer other than just my, my listening ears. Um, I like to see myself as a, as a mirror for somebody um, so that they can reflect as they talk things out or because um, I truly believe everybody knows um, what's right, what's not and what they need and what they don't and sometimes they can't articulate it but I can't, I'm not a psychic. I mean, like, I'm not psychic. I can't read mind, right? Yeah. Um, but I do believe that um, people do have the power to turn to themselves and find what they need and what they want. Yeah. So I just want to be that mirror for everybody. Yeah. I'm not going to tell people what to do. <laughs> who, the, who the hell am I to tell people what to do, right? Um, so that's just my, my approach as I develop relationships certainly and i want to be a cheerleader for others and yeah because there are days when things are hard yeah right? certainly and I'm, i don't do it in a phony kind of a way yeah i acknowledge difficult times and um, but i just i like um, i think that's why i'm in, in education because i just there's so much potential that all of you have and again my role is to help you see it yourself yeah. So, Thank you for yeah. everything. <laughs> no, but like like this, right? Oh my God, I, I just cherish these moments. So thank you. Really, I, <laughs> I'm just beyond honored that you asked me to, to have a conversation with you about this. I was having such a wonderful time talking with Claire about her research that I wanted to know more about what plans she had for her work or even if she had other projects in mind. Spoiler alert, she has a lot of really exciting ideas, but let's hear what she has to say. Well, I mean, I'm getting to the latter part of my, you know, sort of formal professional life. Um, I think in terms of India, 
I'm inclined to think that I, it's not, I, I think I want to treat that more as a place I want to go to see my friends and a place that I want to enjoy myself. I see myself, one thing I'm kind of interested in trying to do is trying to do something uh, like an oral history project um, amongst, uh, India, uh, amongst craft workers in the film industry here, because I, I'm just kind of interested now, I mean, you go through a long stage where you want to analyze and break down, and now I'm sort of kind of come through that, and to a certain extent, you just kind of want to know what people have to say for themselves and not break it down and analyze it and, and take it apart. Um, and I think there are a lot of stories of people working in certain areas of the film industry that are really not very much known. And I would just like to do something like that, which then is a sort of a project that then other people could build on, um, as opposed to something else, just me, it's just mine, you know, nobody else can do it. You know, I can just start it off and then other people can join in and add to it, that kind of thing. Um, another thing I'm thinking about is, and I'm not quite sure that I could really be particularly helpful to people, but I'm very, very conscious of just, um, you know, it's very, very hard for, for, for undergraduate students now between, you know, how much debt you take on. Um, there's a lot of stress, obviously, with COVID and how we've been dealing with that. But I think in general, I think we sometimes make the undergraduate experience unnecessarily complicated. And instead of simplifying it, we just seem to be making it more difficult. And so I think professionally, I'm sort of also inclined to begin to look institutionally at, at um, why this is and why, why, you know, what are the ways in which we could actually simplify as opposed to making things more complicated. But that's what I'd like to do. I still haven't figured out what the plan is to do that, but it's just something I've noticed and I'm very conscious of. I am so inspired by her goals and her plans for the future, and everything that she mentioned is so important. So I'm going to bring on Sho Shigioka one last time so that we can talk about education, curiosity, and what we could do to make learning more accommodating for all students. I worked at community college and then two state schools, Oregon State and U of L. And there's so many things, and I think it still happens. Like what she said, like, why are we still doing this? It's just so dumb. <laughs> and we do it in our system, too. Like, we do it just because. Like, yeah. but why? But why? Don't quote me on this. I know you're recording me. I can put it up. <laughs> you know, like, last year we learned that we started school at 8.30, right? Yeah. And that helped a lot of students. Because yeah. research is really clear that teenagers really can't get up that early and be functional. Exactly. Right? But we still do school at 7.45 to 2.30. Why? Because we've always done it this way. Yeah. yeah. And that's not good enough reason to sustain certain things. Yeah. And it happens at the college level, too. And, um, and I appreciate how she is really thinking more from the systems kind of a lens as to what can she do to re kind of dismantle yeah. the stupid things that happen undergraduate um, education and happen in graduate school too, don't get me wrong. Because um, mm-hmm. that's something that I'm trying to do too at this level. Yeah. Um, let's just not do things just because we've always done it this way. Yeah. Let's make change. Um, if it's it's right for students yeah and that's how it should be in an undergraduate world too right 
Yeah. Um, and like I, this, even like something as so traditional and ingrained or system with the grading, right? The letter grades A, B, yes. C, D, and F, right? Um, I, I, I think we need to think differently about how we assess students how we give students an opportunity to demonstrate what they know, what they're able to do, and what they want to do with their learning. Like what you're doing here, like independent studies and doing this research, this is so valuable from my perspective. Yeah. I think you find it oh, valuable too. Totally. Right? Um, and you can't just simplify it into this letter grades and um, but just because we've always done it this way. Mm -hmm. um, so I just feel like we are afraid of moving away from the status quo. Yeah. Um, but I think as women collectively, because we have been forced to be in a male-dominant, misogynistic culture, mm -hmm. culture of competition, culture of, again, pull up your bootstrap, all of that, right? I think we as a woman can really be the source to change that kind of a thinking of, yeah. We just do it just because. Yeah. I don't know. If you want to try new things, you're not expected to be perfect exactly. all the time. You're... There's never such, there's no such thing as perfect. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So just like for this, like technically I'm being graded on it, mm -hmm. but like I'm just having the freedom to explore and I've encountered some challenges mm -hmm. and like, that's fine. I've worked but through them. But you learn it, right? And I'm learning. But you learn it. Yep. And it's not about being like, oh, I have to get it perfect the first time because no. I can't. No. No. get it even the last time right. like right. I just having the freedom to just try mm -hmm. and be like okay this didn't work mm -hmm. I'm gonna try this now right. just having having that opportunity mm -hmm. I feel like we need that more in schools I agree 100% and because again if we are a truly a learning institution yeah we need to learn from our own experience we need to learn from Oh shoot! I messed up. What can I do differently? Right? Because yeah. it's, it's always about improving. That is all for this episode. I hope you were able to learn more about the field of anthropology from a female perspective, as well as listen to an incredible woman share about her really important work. I want to say a huge thank you to Claire Wilkinson. We had such a great conversation, and I was able to learn so much from her in such a short amount of time. If you are interested in her work, you can check out both of her books, Embroidering Lives, Women's Work and Skill in the Lucknow Embroidery Industry, and Fashioning Bollywood, The Making and Meaning of Hindi Film Costume. They're both linked down below in the show notes, so totally check them out. You can find me on Twitter at Olivia N. Maynard for podcast updates and other upcoming projects. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you back next time. Bye! Bye!